Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the big question not asked or answered in the frenzied focus on Trump's indictments over the stolen classified documents, and that is, why did he do it? Widening the frame, we will look into the possibility that Trump did it because Putin told him to, and that Putin has owned Trump and continues to act as his case officer, having inherited him from the Soviet KGB as a trusted contact. Since it is difficult for the American people to broach the concept of a U.S. president controlled by the Kremlin in what would be the greatest intelligence coup since the Germans put Lenin in a boxcar in 1917 and sent him to Russia, we will go over the record of collusion which Republicans in Barr and Durham have misdirected as Russiagate with Tom Hartman, the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, carried on Sirius XM and radio stations nationwide. A four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Hartman is also a New York Times best-selling author of 34 books translated into multiple languages, the latest of which is The Hidden History of American Democracy. We will discuss his article at thehartmanreport.com. How much damage has the Trump-Putin collusion inflicted on America? Then we'll explore the analogies between World War I and the current war in Ukraine, both in terms of how the aggressors thought they could pull off a quick victory and how the wars have dragged on with trench warfare and, over the horizon, the possibility of escalation in the case of poison gas by the Germans in 1915 and recent threats from Putin to use nuclear weapons. Joining us from the UK is Margaret McMillan, is Margaret McMillan an Emeritus Professor of International History at the University of Oxford. Her books include The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914, Nixon and Mao, and War, How Conflict Shaped Us. We will discuss her article at Foreign Affairs, How Wars Don't End, Ukraine, Russia, and the Lessons of World War One. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Tom Hartman, the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, carried on Sirius XM and radio stations nationwide, a four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award. Tom Hartman is also a New York Times best-selling author of 34 books translated into multiple languages, the latest of which is Languages, the latest of which is The Hidden History of American Democracy. And he has an article at TomHartmanReport.com. How much damage has the Trump-Putin collusion inflicted on America? Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Hartman. Hey, Ian. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's clear that the charges under the Espionage Act that Donald Trump is facing are as serious as it gets. But my understanding is because defendants often use what they call gray mail, Jack Smith probably held back on really detailing what they even have in terms of the charges in the indictment, the 49-page indictment, and there may well be other more serious charges. So what's your sense of how they're going to navigate this? Because it's extraordinary to notice that the Republican Party is ignoring the seriousness of these charges and Trump's GOP rivals for the presidency are tripping over each other to offer him pardons. Yeah, it's 
demonstrating what many of us have suspected for many decades, which is that the GOP uh, is not a political party with a philosophical or patriotic core, that essentially it has become, at least since uh, Nixon was in the White House taking, you know, million dollar cash bribes from Jimmy Hoffa and the milk lobby uh, back in the day in the in the Oval Office, that the GOP has basically become a, uh, you know, a front group for for right wing billionaires and, and, you know, anybody who will pay the bills. Increasingly, that has become foreign entities, whether it's the Saudis handing a couple billion dollars to the Trump family uh, last year or, or the year before, or whether it's, uh, you know, Putin. Uh, laundering money through real estate via Trump uh, and Putin and his Russian oligarch buddies uh, or, or, you know, other corrupt you know, entities, um, right wing billionaires. Right. But hasn't Trump, I mean, Nixon looked like a Boy Scout compared to Trump. I mean, Trump yeah. is a career criminal. And what I find extraordinary is that as for all the coverage we have of this current indictment, that nobody except for you and a few other people are pulling back and saying, wait a minute, why don't we look at the full picture here? Maybe this guy, Trump, is owned by Putin. And if you go into the history, which you've done in here, the case is pretty overwhelming. Oh, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And, and, and I agree with your assessment uh, earlier that um, uh, Jack Smith has probably withheld a lot of information um, just because... Uh, he doesn't want to provide it to the Trump counsel uh, or to the courts because it is so sensitive, you know, that he's had to cherry pick. I mean, they have hundreds of documents to pick from and they just picked a few. Um, so, you know, it, it, it may be that he's withholding some things that he's going to pull out at trial, but I, I don't believe that uh, he can do that uh, because of the disclosure rules, you know, the evidence rules. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, this started in the in the seventies or eighties. I'd have to go back and look at my article for the exact date when um, uh, uh, Donald married Ivana. But her father, uh, she was, you know, she grew up in Czechoslovakia, and her father was a a, a, a pigeon, as a, a you know, a, an agent, a, a not not a full blown spy, more like a informed, confidential yeah. informant. Yeah for the uh, Czech version of the Stasi or the, the KGB of, you know, the, the Czech secret police and, and then reported through them to the KGB. And they kept very close track of Donald. And, and then he and Ivanka, or Ivana rather, were um, around that time in the, in, in the 80s, I believe it was during the Reagan administration, uh, you can correct me, I think it was 87, um, were invited to Moscow where they were wined and dined by, um, you know, the, the KGB. And he was uh, told how brilliant he was and that he really should run for president and that he could have a huge future in America. And uh, and he came back to the United States. And, and again, keep in mind, this is like, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago. He came back to the United States and uh, went up to New Hampshire and did an exploratory uh, uh, meeting about running for president and then uh, bought a full page ad in The Washington Post, The New York Times and one other paper. Boston and Globe, in yeah. That, yeah, Boston Globe. And in that ad, um, basically said, you know, it's time to dump NATO in our in our uh, relationship with Japan. You know, in other words, uh, you know, wh why does America have these stupid allies, which is exactly what Russia wanted. In fact, uh, there was a celebration, according to intelligence, American intelligence sources, there was a celebration in Moscow that this active effort was active measures effort was so incredibly successful, far more than they had anticipated that, that Trump had been just, you know, so willing to jump in on this. And then, of course, in the in the 90s, um, you know, uh, and and leading up to the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were there, there, there were a, particularly in the 90s, there were all these Russian oligarchs uh, laundering money through Trump properties. Uh, real estate is the number one way big money gets laundered in the world. And uh, along with Trump the casinos, Tom, I might add, in, right. in Atlantic City. Yeah. And I was just going to say, and Trump went through his bankruptcy during that period of time. He couldn't even run his casino uh, in a way that was profitable. Or maybe he did. And the money just ended up, you know, in somebody else's pockets. Um, and uh, I mean, we'll probably never know at this point. 
Um, but but then, you know, both of his sons, both Eric and Don Jr., have said that they don't need American money uh, or American bank money because they get pretty much everything they need from Russia. Now, this was a decade or so ago that they said this before he was running for political office. So, you know, it, it there's a, a long history with Trump that goes back, you know, quite some time uh, being connected to Russia. And then, of course, you know, you get into the 2016 election and here's Paul Manafort, who was paid tens of millions of dollars by Putin-connected oligarchs to put uh, Viktor Yanukovych uh, to install him in 2010 as the um, uh, president of Ukraine on behalf of Putin. And uh, then when finally Yanukovych got kicked out, Manafort left Ukraine and, and came to the United States and told Trump that he would run his campaign for free, um, you know, presumably because he was being paid by Russia or had been paid and he owed them big time. And then, you know, Manafort engineers taking uh, criticism of Russia out of the Republican Party platform, taking uh, praise for Ukraine out of the Republican platform. Um, he or organizes that infamous June 9th, 2016 meeting in Trump Tower uh, with two representatives of a Putin-connected oligarch and, and a, a translator uh, affiliated with Russian intelligence and a Russian lawyer affiliated with Russian intelligence. And uh, 20 minutes after that meeting is over, although Donald wasn't in the meeting, 20 minutes after the meeting is over, Trump is tweeting about Hillary Clinton's emails. And, and then a week later, uh, two weeks later, I guess, we discover, uh, you know, it hit the news that CrowdStrike had discovered that the DNC server had just been hacked and they had gotten access to all of their emails. Uh, so, I mean, and that was just the beginning. <laughs> just right. the beginning. Right. Well, his trip to Moscow was on July the 4th of 1987. And he was promised a Trump Tower back then, which he was also working on in even in 2017 when he was in the uh, in the Oval Office. And of course, as the Soviet Union collapsed, the KGB were the only people who knew what the hell was going on in that country, and they were able to f literally steal the Soviet Treasury, park it in New York, funnel money through the gangsters, the Vori, in uh, Brighton Beach into r Trump real estate and into his casinos. But I think the interesting stuff, though, is really what happened when he was president, once they got him into the presidency. According to your article, in 2019, the Washington Post revealed that throughout his presidency, Donald Trump was having secret phone conversations with Russian President Putin. Over 20 have been identified so far, just one days before the 2020 election. So let's walk through some of that how he secretly communicated, in effect, getting his orders from Putin while he was in the White House, and how Rand Paul also helped deliver a package of information from Trump to Putin. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly recap the, the timeline that's in my article um, uh, over at HartmanReport.com. Um, first of all, uh, when he first became president, he, he invited uh, uh, Sergei Kislyak, uh, the the uh, Russian ambassador and uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, to the Oval Office for what he thought was going to be a secret meeting. Um, the Russians later released the photo to the press, which <laughs> apparently shocked him. Um, and in that meeting, uh, he revealed to them the identity and and we don't know how much information about a uh, an Israeli spy who was working in Syria against the Russians. And this was at a time that uh, Putin was bombing the crap out of Aleppo, just bombing that city to rubble on behalf of uh, Bashar al-Assad in that, that civil war. Um, as a result of that, the CIA decided to pull a longtime American spy in the Kremlin, in the Kremlin out. He was the top American uh, source for information inside the Kremlin. He was so highly placed that he was able to deliver to the CIA photographs of documents on Putin's desk. Um, you know, and so, you know, the, the CIA pulled him out because they were afraid if after Trump burned the Israeli spy that they, he would start burning our spies. And that was just a massive loss to our intelligence capabilities. And it might have even set up the attack on Ukraine, um, you know, that we lost our ability to have prevented that or stopped that. And then, you know, the, the following year, uh, that was 2017, the following year in July 16th, 2018, uh, Trump and Putin met in Helsinki and uh, they met in a, a large ballroom that was completely empty. Uh, apparently Trump sent the American translator off to a far corner where she couldn't hear what was being said. 
and uh, what few notes she had, he ordered destroyed. And uh, Putin is fluent in English uh, and German, by the way, you, you know, he used to work in East Germany. And uh, the Washington Post reported uh, after a leak six months later that when that meeting happened in Helsinki, the CIA just went into panic mode, just a, you know, a gasp at CIA's Langley, uh, wrote the, the Washington Post. Three weeks after that, on July 16th, 2018, that meeting was um, on, uh, on July, uh, yeah, three weeks after that uh, July 16 meeting, which would, have been, which would have been the first week of August, Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul made a solo trip to Moscow to personally hand deliver a document or package of documents from Trump to Putin. Now, we still don't know what was in it. Rand Paul has told the press that it was a personal letter from uh, Trump to Putin. Um, but, you know, uh, what that was, what those documents were that uh, Trump wanted delivered to Putin three weeks after he had just spent two hours talking to Putin, uh, nobody knows. But um, uh, 10 days after that trip by Rand Paul to Moscow, the New York Times reported that the CIA was now very worried because their sources in Moscow had, quote, suddenly gone silent. And uh, they, they were very concerned because a uh, FBI informant by the name of Stefan Halpert, who had been embedded uh, in or was close to the Trump campaign, he was on behalf of the FBI looking for Russian connections in the Trump campaign. Uh, he got outed by Trump um, and by Trump humping Republicans in the House of Representatives. And uh, so that they, they think that may have been connected to why suddenly uh, the CIA lost access to all their connections inside Moscow. And then, you know, in 2019, as Putin was planning his invasion of Ukraine and Trump was getting ready for the election, uh, Trump had a series in July. He had uh, conversations with five, five foreign leaders, including Putin and the Emir of Qatar. And in one of those conversations, we don't know which one, but I think probably uh, his conversation with Putin is a safe bet. According to a high-level U.S. intelligence source, uh, as the Washington Post reported, Trump made, quote, promises to a, quote, world leader that were so alarming that it, it provoked a, a, a scramble across, right across all of the U.S. intelligence agencies. And, and it was such an urgent concern, uh, that's a legal term, that uh, it required them to notify congressional oversight committees. And then on the last day of that month, just a couple of weeks later, Trump had another private discussion with Putin. Uh, when it got released, when it got leaked that this had happened, uh, the White House spokesman said that Trump had said that they just discussed wildfire and trade between nations. But the week after that, on August 2nd, uh, the Daily Beast's Betsy Swan reported that Trump that week had asked his director of national intelligence to give him a, to physically give him a list of all of its employees, including all of our spies who had worked in our intelligence agencies for more than 90 days. And uh, that that had the intelligence officers experiencing what she described as disquiet. And then, you know, the, the following year, we see this New York Times piece um, uh, with the headline, Captured, Killed, or Compromised, CIA admits to losing dozens of informants. And uh, we learned that well, this is, I'll just quote from the Times, you know, top American counterintelligence officials warned every CIA station and base around the world last week about troubling numbers of informants recruited from other countries to spy for the United States being captured or killed. The message in an unusual top secret cable said that the CIA's counterintelligence mission center had looked at dozens of cases in the last several years involving foreign informants. The last several years would be during the Trump presidency, right? Involving foreign informants who had been killed, arrested, or most likely compromised. And this uh, relatively short cable uh, laid out the specific number of agents executed by rival intelligence agencies, which is something that normally you don't put in a cable. This was a you know, panic attack, basically, that our intelligence agencies were having. So, you know, it's pretty grim stuff. It looks like Trump might have not just burned an Israeli spy. He might have led to the, perhaps even the death of numerous American uh, spies or uh, people who were working for American intelligence around the world, particularly in Russia. Right. And Tom, in particular, going back to the really valuable spy that the U.S. had inside the Kremlin, he, uh, Oleg Smolenkov was his name, he was 
exfiltrated because he thought that Trump would drop a dime on him. And, you know, the, unfortunately, the, the Steele dossier got all that attention, but it was essentially a kind of distraction, to say the least. His intelligence was the basis of why Obama went to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and asked for them, and along with the Democratic counterparts, asked them to uh, go public that Russia was interfering in the elections, and McConnell and Ryan refused to do so, and unfortunately Obama dropped it. But what happened to Smolenkov was when he, he went out through Montenegro with his family and then got into the United States, and they put him in a safe house, and then Devin Nunez and, and Ezra Cohen-Watnick and Cash Patel of the House Intelligence Committee allegedly leaked the location of the safe house and CNN shows up with cameras and they have to then have to move this guy. And that prevented him from, uh, because he went into witness protection, that prevented him from testifying to the Mueller committee, which would have made a lot of difference since the Republicans muddied the water so much with the Steele dossier. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a a truly amazing story. And, 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 uh, you know, whether Trump, uh, was doing this because he thought that he'd make a billion dollars on a Trump Tower in Moscow or whether he was doing it because Putin had uh, PP tapes, you know, him and the prostitutes in Moscow or uh, or perhaps something either even far more salacious. I mean, he was he had a beauty pa- uh, contest of a pageant. Uh, there were there were underage girls and he bragged about going in the dressing rooms. But maybe this was more of a Jeffrey Epstein kind of thing. Uh, Trump was very, very tight with Epstein and spent a lot of time with him over the years. Um, and uh, they may have blackmail, you know, of Trump with underage girls. I mean, who knows? But uh, for some reason, uh, Donald Trump clearly, uh, in my opinion anyway, has betrayed his country. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and we saw this writ large when, you know, when he went, uh, when he talked to Zelensky and withhold military aid to Zelensky and, and tried to get Zelensky to lie about Joe Biden. Well, in the indictments, Tom, in Jack Smith's indictments, one of the uh, espionage charges is that Trump had in his possession, we don't know what he did with it and who he showed it to. You know, you, you mentioned that he showed a top secret map to Kid Rock uh, in the White House. But there's nothing more secret than a document that outlines the U.S. vulnerability to a military attack from an enemy. I mean, that's about as top secret as possible that you could ever have. And we know that that's one of the things that he had out there. And when you talked about the Saudis, apart from his compromise from the Russians with the Saudis, if the Saudis were prepared to give his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, $2 billion, and his former Treasury Secretary, Mnuchin, $1 billion, how much do you think Trump is worth to the Saudis? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I expect that the live golf tournament was an opportunity to uh, launder money uh, directly to Donald Trump. Uh, we have no idea yet what kind of fee they paid him for the use of his golf courses, uh, what kind of licensing fee they play, paid him or, or, or a talent fee. I mean, they, they were paying hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, several of the golfers and he played golf in that tournament. I mean, you know, maybe they may well have paid him hundreds of millions or even billions. We just we don't know. I mean, that's all secret uh, to this day. But I, I and 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 I think with that, I, you know, I wrote a piece uh, last week about how Jared Kushner had gone over to uh, Saudi Arabia before MBS was really firmly in charge um, when actually his uh, cousin MBD was uh, who was the son of the king and the, and the grandson of the founder of Saudi Arabia was uh, in more or less in charge and, and, the, and the clear heir apparent. And Jared, uh, according to a piece in the Jerusalem Post, uh, gave MBS information from a presidential daily briefing that had been given to Donald Trump that identified who was loyal to MBS and who was loyal to MBD within the Saudi uh, royal family. And a week after Jared came back from that trip, MBS gathers up all these Saudi royals in, the, in, the, uh, in that hotel, that fancy hotel, the Ritz-Carlton, and uh, under armed guard, tortures several of them, kills one of them, 
um, and takes billions, hundreds of billions from several of them, breaks them, and and ultimately gets them all to swear loyalty to him. And then, you know, subsequent to that, he is now the undisputed ruler of the country, of the kingdom. And uh, my opinion, and this is, you know, just informed by that, I mean, it's a circumstantial evidence, I suppose, but my opinion is that's why Jared got the $2 billion. Um, but, uh, you know, it may have been a whole lot more than that. I mean, you know, the nuclear secrets, uh, the Iranian stuff, um, you know, Iran is kind of a sworn enemy of Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that Donald could have taken. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there's also reports that he traveled all around the world and carried boxes of documents with him on his travels. And he would take them into hotels in foreign countries that were hostile to the United States and just leave them in the hotel rooms. <laughs> Was that a way of handing stuff off to, to foreign agents via, you know, people dressed up as maids? Um, was that a way of carrying documents so that he could show them off to foreign oligarchs or foreign leaders uh, by way of impressing them? Or was he selling them? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, well, we don't know, for example, Tom, that the uh, Russian woman that was posing as a Rothschild who played golf with Trump and Lindsey Graham and visited Mar-a-Lago a lot of times, whether she was scouting for the FSB or the SVR, because all those boxes were, were all the documents we're talking about were sitting out in the ballroom and all over the place. So, yeah. so just in closing, though, I'm so frustrated that this accounting of Trump, the obvious ties, I mean, clearly the Republicans and, and Barr and his flunky that did the bogus report investigating the investigators, they've muddied the waters. But I just wonder why it is that, I mean, if you talk to counterintelligence people, they've known forever about Trump being a traitor. And when you think about who Trump targeted when he first came into office, he targeted Andy McCabe, the acting head of the FBI after he'd fired Comey, who was one of the top counterintelligence and Russian organized crime figures at the FBI, Bruce Orr, Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, the entire core group of counterintelligence specialists and particularly specialists on Putin and Russian organized crime, which are one and the same, they all got purged. So do you think Trump is smart enough to know who these people are? Did some, or did somebody tell him about who to get rid of? I think it's clearly the latter. I think he's been, de- he's been you know, take, taking his marching orders from Putin for a long, long time. Um, I, and I think it's fairly clear that he wouldn't have become president without Putin. You know, the, the uh, Paul Manafort, when he was running his campaign, was um, uh, pipelining uh, internal polling data and you know secret information about the campaign directly into Russian intelligence via a, a Russian oligarch, and and telling them specifically you know which states he had problems in and 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 where and when, so that then the the Russian troll factories could you know go into Facebook and, and I mean they could literally target voters at the you know city block level, and uh, you know convince them how to vote or if to vote or not to vote or whatever. I, you know, I think it's it's fairly clear, and that and that, that might, I mean, it could be it's so simple that that's what you know uh, Putin was blackmailing him with, or that's the debt that he owed Putin. But I think, frankly, that this goes back forty years. I really do. Well, Tom Hartman, I appreciate your time. We could talk for a long time, and I hope more people start looking at what's really behind the uh, indictments of Donald Trump and what the larger frame is for this story, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Ian. Thanks Thanks for having me on your program. And again, I've been speaking with Tom Hartman, who's the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, carried on Sirius XM and radio stations nationwide, a four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award. Hartman is also a New York Times bestselling author of 34 books, translated into multiple languages, the latest of which is The Hidden History of American Democracy. And he has an article at thehartmanreport.com How much damage has the Trump-Putin collusion inflicted on America? We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring the analogies between World War I and the current war in Ukraine.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Margaret McMillan, an Emeritus Professor of International History at the University of Oxford. Her books include The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914, Nixon and Mao, and War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And she has an article at Foreign Affairs, How Wars Don't End Ukraine, Russia, and the Lessons of World War One. Welcome to Background Briefing, Margaret McMillan. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, the the war in Ukraine is obviously not ending. It's escalating with a with an offensive. And as your article at Foreign Affairs points out, that there are obvious comparisons with World War One, just in terms of right on the ground in the front lines. Uh, you have scenes uh, of soldiers knee deep in mud. Uh, the two sides facing each other from trenches and ruined buildings across a wasteland churned up by shells. It could be from the Western Front in 1916 or Stalingrad in 1942. So it is a very grim situation. And frankly, Margaret, it does seem that this offensive may not succeed, that the Russians have learned their lessons from their earlier missteps in this war and a lot of the equipment that the Ukrainians have been getting from the West, particularly from the United States, is not really good. It's recycled stuff. So is that your sense? It certainly is mine from my contacts inside the uh, Ukrainian uh, military and intelligence. It may be the case. Um, I hate to think so because I'm very much hoping the Ukrainians will prevail. I think the Russians have learned. They've learned very painfully, and it's cost a tremendous amount of, in, in Russian lives. This is very much like what happened in the Second World War when they suffered initial catastrophic defeats at the hands of the Germans and then did learn. And so it may well be that they're much better prepared. Also, of course, they've had time over the winter to prepare their defenses, and so attacking is much more difficult. On the other hand, I think um, the Ukrainians are more flexible, I think have been quicker, and of course are better motivated. The Ukrainians are fighting for their homeland. Um, The Russians often are conscript soldiers who don't really know what they're fighting for. And so I think a lot could happen on the battlefield. I think we can't make predictions about it, but I think it is going to be a very tense couple of months. And let's talk further about the uh, analogies with World War I. As you point out, the Germans, in particular Kaiser Wilhelm and his military, they really thought, as Putin did, in preparing the attack on Ukraine, that it would be a quick victory. And uh, he'd captured Kiev in a few days, and Kaiser Wilhelm and, Wilhelm and his uh, generals thought that they'd be in Paris in, what, a couple of weeks? What was their delusion? It was 42 days they were thinking of. I mean, pretty short um, to defeat a major power. I think it's partly the case that um, the military in particular are trained to get victories. I mean, that's that's part of their purpose. And, you know, they if they say to their political masters, um, we're not sure we can do anything for you, they don't last very long. And so I think there is a propensity on the part of the military to think in terms of a decisive victory. And I think in the case of Putin, um, perhaps less so with the Germans in the First World War, I think he thought, like a lot of other people, that the overwhelming advantage that Russia had in, in manpower and in equipment and resources, just the sheer size of Russia, would overwhelm Ukraine and, and Ukraine wouldn't be able to resist. Well, is, are there also analogies between Putin and Kaiser Wilhelm in the sense that Kaiser Wilhelm felt slighted by his cousins in the British aristocracy and had a grudge? And there's no question that Putin has a massive grudge against the West. I myself think that personalities can matter an awful lot, particularly when those personalities are in tremendous positions of power. And I think things like humiliation and hurt feelings do play into the decisions they make. I mean, I think Kaiser Wilhelm was both, I think, felt that he wasn't taken seriously by his peers around Europe, but also was very worried because his own military were calling him timid. And that really cut because he was very proud of his military and very proud of his military service. And I think in the case of President Putin, I think the humiliation that he experienced personally when he was a young uh, officer, KGB officer in, in Dresden, when the Cold War ended and the Russians or the Soviets went from being the masters of Eastern Europe to being unwanted guests. I think he also has this deep sense of, of Russian history that the territory that was, once was Russian must be Russian forever. 
So I think in some cases it really does matter what humiliations people are trying to avenge or what they ambitions they have because they have the power to do something about them. Well, indeed, the humiliation was quite profound for Putin. He, right across the street from the residence, the KGB residence where he was in uh, in Dresden, uh, the Stasi building was sacked and the papers were flying out the window <laughs> and the, the rioters came to the residence and, and he apparently sort of waved a pistol around and then him and his wife, all they could take back from their, from Germany was they strapped a... East German washing machine on the top of their car and drove all the way back to Moscow. So that was that was his prize from the end of the Cold War, an East German washing machine. That is a very good story, which I hadn't heard, but um, it somehow sums it up very well indeed. And I think what also happened in the 1990s, I mean, it was a coincidence, but it was a triumph of, of, of neoliberalism, the idea that you um, capitalism could, could solve all problems. And I think the Russians were told in a perhaps much too patronizing way by the West, you know, just copy our example and you'll be okay. And Russia went through a dreadful period in the 1990s. And I think Putin also perhaps is reacting to that. I mean, there was a time of tremendous instability, um, growing inequalities, an economy that wasn't working. And I think he also felt that Russia was no longer being taken seriously. You know, the Cold War was over and, and Russia was being patronized. And I think all of these things go together to making up some of his attitudes towards the West in particular. Well, the West, of course, and, and the U.S. in particular, were guilty of what they call over here dancing in the end zone at the end of the Cold War. And it's hard to believe that having invested trillions in so-called winning the Cold War, very little was invested in securing the so-called victory. But in terms of Putin's not paying attention to him or perhaps dismissing him, you point out that there should have been more attention paid to the lengthy essay Putin published in 2021 that said it all. I'm reading from your, your foreign affairs piece on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Not only was Ukraine the birthplace of Russia itself, he argued, but its peoples have always been Russian. In his view, malign outside forces, Austria-Hungary before World War One and the European Union today had tried to divide Russia from its rightful patrimony. He really believes that, along with a number of bizarre conspiracy theories, but that is a bedrock belief of Putin's, is it not? I think it is, because why would he have spent so much time on the essay? I mean, he, he, as far as we know, he wrote it himself. He took it very seriously, and he has taken history very seriously. I mean, he often talks to congresses of school teachers, and, and he has been supervising you know, for years what sort of history is taught in the Russian schools. And I think to understand Putin and, and his motivations, and, and, and that of a lot of Russians, I think we need to understand the lenses with which they look through their own history and, and their history of their interrelationship with the rest of the world, because that really colors the attitudes they have towards the rest of the world and, and the ambitions that they have for Russia. Let's take a brief station break, and we'll be back in a moment continuing the conversation with Margaret McMillan. It's the same old Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, and we're continuing the conversation with Margaret McMillan, who is joining us from the UK. She's an emeritus professor of international history at the University of Oxford, and her books include The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914, Nixon and Mao, and War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And we are discussing her article at Foreign Affairs, How Wars Don't End, Ukraine, Russia, and the Lessons of World War One. So what's your sense then of what the real issues are in terms of so many in the West on the left, and I'm sure they're in the UK, somehow excuse the brutality and the, the hideous nature of Putin's aggression in literally murdering a country before our eyes with the excuse, if you will, that it's sort of the West's fault because of uh, eastward expansion of NATO. And again, we've just been talking about triumphalism on the part of the West at the end of the Cold War and dismissing Russia's, not just its feelings, but its strategic imperatives. 
But I think we can accept that the West made mistakes um, or leaders in the West made mistakes in the 1990s. But it seems to me that nothing justifies what Putin and, and his armed forces have done to Ukraine. You know, the attacks on innocent civilians, the deliberate blowing up of, of residential buildings, of targeting schools, targeting hospitals, destroying the infrastructure. None of this, it seems to me, is justified, nor, I think, was the original invasion. You know, the original invasion was, was a breach of international law. It was invading a country which whose people had made it quite clear that they wanted to be independent. And I, I don't know about you, but I believe strongly in the right of self-determination of peoples when they have a shared history and a, and a shared territory, um, that they should not be forced to, to become part of someone else's empire against their wishes. And so I think, you know, to say that, that what Putin is doing is somehow justified by mistakes that were made in the 1990s is, is just completely unbalanced. I mean, it's, it's, it's not what happened in the 1990s was nothing like what has happened to Ukraine in the present period and is continuing to happen to Ukraine. Well, it's in effect abandoning people in the sense that, you know, what does Putin offer? He offers gangster government. Look at the Belarus as a, as a model of what Putin offers. And the Ukrainian people wanted prosperity, security. They wanted EU values and the rule of law. So one of the things that you speculate in in your article at at foreign affairs is that another motive was in play if liberalism and democracy took root in ukraine as appeared to be happening those dangerous forces might start to infect russian society too that seems to me to be really an important point well i agree with you completely i mean i think that um you know the the, the fear that putin had because when you think of what happened in belarus as well you know it very nearly got out of the hands of, of Putin's uh, crony, Lukashenko, President Lukashenko. Um, there was a, a, what looks like a broadly based uprising of, of people in Belarus who, who wanted to have better relations with the West, wanted to have a different sort of society, wanted to have a freer and, and more open society. And so I think for Putin, the fear was that if Ukraine remained independent, it was clearly moving more towards the West. I mean, there, there was that huge series of protests, the Maidan protests in Ukraine, when the then president tried to to pull Ukraine back from any relationship with the EU. And it was quite clear what the Ukrainian people wanted, probably quite clear what the people in Belarus wanted. And I think we always, you know, we tend to forget that Russia is a remaining empire. It's the last of the great Western empires. And there are lots of people, I mean, in fact, hundreds of, of different ethnicities living within its borders who may well want to live in a different sort of society. And so I think from Putin's point of view, the threat that here is this rich and, and potentially or potentially very prosperous and rich Ukraine becoming more and more um, democratic, turning more and more towards the West would be a real threat to, to the Soviet, well, so I say, let's keep saying the Soviet Union, but to Russia, because there would be other peoples inside Russia who would say, why can't we have the same thing? And of course, Russian dissidents, I mean, these extraordinary brave dissidents who have been struggling at, often at the cost of their lives, to try and, and create a different sort of Russian society than the one that exists now. Do you think then, Margaret Macmillan, that the fact that there was a Soviet empire, that it was a colonial power and, and a brutal one at that, to my mind, one of the greatest propaganda victories in history has been the fact that the Soviets, and to some extent the successor Russians, have been very skillful in basically becoming champions of anti-colonialism while they were an imperialist power. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And, and they're still doing it. I mean, if you look at the act activities of the Wagner Group um, and indeed the Russian government in, in much of Africa, for example, where you have this, this ghastly Russian mercenary force um, often dominating African governments, sacking African countries for their resources, exploiting the resources, and so the Russian government attempting to do the same. It, it's extraordinary to me that Russia gets a free pass and, and the West doesn't. I mean, it's not to say, I think it's understandable why a lot of countries in the rest of the world, in the non-European, non-North American parts of the world, would not rush to the, to the defense of Ukraine. Um, you know, I think a lot of these countries see it as very much a European conflict. And as some of them point out, and I think they have reason, where was the rest of the world and where is the rest of the world when, when dreadful wars are going on, for example, in the Great Lakes region of Africa? Um, you know, I think they can argue there's, there's a double standard here. Having said that, I still think that it's, it's unfortunate 
that the message that somehow Russia represents anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism is, is out there. Um, it's unfortunate because it's wrong. Well, just to illustrate that point, the African delegation of leaders, including Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa and, and Sisi of Egypt and others, were in Ukraine on Friday when the, the Russians fired a bunch of missiles and they had to go into shelters and the sirens were wailing and people were rushing into bomb shelters. And then afterwards, when they emerged from the shelters, uh, Ramaphosa said to the cameras that he didn't hear any sirens and didn't see anybody rushing into the two shelters as though the whole thing didn't happen or that it was somehow staged. That was a very troubling uh, moment, I thought. There's a lot that Mr. Ramaphosa doesn't see, unfortunately, um, also inside his own country, which I think is unfortunate. Um, you know, it seems to me extraordinarily tactless of the Russians to do this, which says something about um, the ways in which Russia conducts foreign policy. I do on the on the on the sort of you know that not all Africans clearly think this way, and there was a very forceful early on statement by the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations just after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, who you you may remember it, who said, you know, there are lots of borders in Africa that come up for question, um, lots of claims we could make on each other's borders. We don't want to settle it by war. This is not the way to do it, and it's a very very dangerous precedent. And and you know I think there are there are different voices. In, in the non-European world that we should be aware of. So back to your essay at uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, Margaret Willen, you point out that World War I indelibly demonstrated that wars rarely go as planned and that at the outbreak of World War I, armies on both sides found that in a matter of weeks they had exhausted stocks of ammunition meant to last for months or more. So that's definitely what's happened in uh, particularly with Ukraine and its dependence upon Western arms. Apparently, the Ukrainian military were going through artillery shells at the rate of what American factories produce in a month. They were shooting in a day. So that is an extraordinary comparison, is it not? I mean, it's uncanny how similar it is. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the reports I'm getting from the Ukrainians is that they're very unhappy with a lot of the stuff that they've been getting is recycled, uh, old material, sometimes it's the wrong ammunition. And at the moment, they don't really want the F-16s. Uh, they want the MiG-29s that they already have. They just want them, the avionics and the weapon systems to be upgraded by the Israelis. And because of lobbying power of General Dynamics, the manufacturers of the F-16s, they're going to force these planes on the Ukrainians. So do you think that there is an element inside, I don't know about inside NATO, but certainly inside the United States that don't really want to humiliate Putin or they don't want the Ukrainians to win? Are we playing a double game here? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think the issue of, of war material is one thing. And this so often happens in war that, that people don't make pre sufficient preparations. They don't recognize just how all-consuming war can get and, and how incredibly wasteful war can be. I mean, I think the West has been scrambling and other friends of Ukraine have been scrambling to try and provide it with equipment. And of course, a lot of it, existing equipment in Ukraine was Soviet era, was, was Russian. So they need the shells that will fit that. And so I'm not sure that there's any sort of deliberate plot to give Ukrainians um, equipment that doesn't work. There are clearly divisions within the United States, however, um, about how far the, the American administration should go in supporting Ukraine. Um, there have been voices raised, um, particularly in the Republican Party, for example. How serious those voices are, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of Republicans are supporting um, Ukraine, supporting the administration's position on Ukraine, but you will be more aware than me. I mean, I don't know how much heft she has, how, how much people listen to it. Someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene um, someone like Tucker Carlson. I mean, they have audiences of a sort and they've been saying, you know, why bother to support Ukraine? And there is, I think, in any, even in any democratic country, there is always a group of people who admire what, who admire what they see as strong, decisive people, usually men, you know, strong men are, are often admired because they make decisions and they don't have to worry about the um, tiresome side of, of democracy having to get consensus and so on. So I think, you know, you will get people, even in countries that are supporting Ukraine, whose governments are supporting Ukraine, who are critical, um, who will sometimes 
support President Putin, or if they don't go that far, will say, why are we supporting Ukraine? It's, it's not worth supporting. But why do you think, as you point out in your foreign affairs piece, that Western powers led by the United States on which Ukraine depends have been painfully slow to ramp up their delivery of weapons and material, leaving Kiev with critical shortages. And I mean, we have set our own red lines and said, oh, no, we can't send you tanks. And then months later, we do. The same with the, with just about every weapon system, including now the aircraft and particularly the Patriot missiles, etc. So why do you think we do that? Why do we say we can't do this and then months later undo the red line that we set for ourselves? I think there must be several reasons. Um, I think one that, like a lot of people, um, uh, people people in the West thought that Ukraine wouldn't hold out. Um, you know, I, they, a lot of people were very sad at the prospect, but thought that the Russian power was going to be so overwhelming. And then when Ukraine did successfully hold out, opinion began to shift. But of course, what Western leaders have been very conscious of is not escalating the war too sharply and in a dangerous way, because that again is, is what something like the First World War shows, that these things, wars get out of control and you get weapons being used that people at the beginning of the war wouldn't use, you get tactics being used, you get attacks on civilians. I mean, the war will expand and you also get more and more powers being drawn in. And the, the, the fear has been that the situation in Ukraine will draw in other powers Poland, for example, countries bordering on Ukraine um, might draw them into the war and that the types of weapons being used could escalate very sharply. I mean, Putin and his spokespeople have made a lot of this, saying that we will use nuclear weapons if necessary. And so I think there's been a caution in the West, but I think the ways in which the Ukrainians have fought, the evident, I think, support of Ukrainians, certainly is, you know, we, we hear nothing about Ukrainians who think the war should stop. I mean, if anything, Ukrainians seem to be more de more united. I mean, the public opinion polls show them even more determined um, to keep on fighting and, and more determined to defeat Russia than they were at the beginning, I think has impressed people in the West. But I think Western governments have a lot of other demands on, on their attention and their money. You know, they have demands for um, social services. They have demands to support failing industries. I think we have not been planning ahead sufficiently. We should have been, I think, my view is, as it became clear the war was going to go on, we should have been much more proactive, or Western governments should have been much more proactive in, in actually ramping up wartime production. You know, the United States became the arsenal of democracy in the Second World War, but it took it about three years to begin to really come on stream and, and begin to put its huge industrial might behind the war. And I see very little evidence. I mean, the British government has not been giving out contracts. Um, the American government, I think, has been doing a bit more. Um, my own country, Canada, certainly hasn't been doing nearly enough. And very little evidence that you know there is a, a serious concerted effort to make sure the factories are there, the technology is there, the equipment is there, the uh, raw, raw materials are there. And I think this is very dangerous indeed. I mean, Western powers are really running out of the sorts of things that they need to support Ukraine and, and of course, to defend themselves. So in terms of fears of escalation, and Putin certainly does play on that, he's had many uh, nuclear alerts, which is clearly, in terms of propaganda, they're, they're sending the message to try and shake the resolve of the populations in NATO countries in terms of threats of nuclear weapons. And you point out in your article in Foreign Affairs, Margaret, that poison gas was outlawed in the 1899 Hague Convention, but it didn't stop Germany from using it starting in 1915, and that Russia has also threatened to break the taboo on the first use of nuclear weapons and has the capability to carry out chemical and biological warfare. So how much do you think of this is propaganda or... or a real possibility because one of the scary things about Russia is that the people waiting in the wings to take over from Putin may well be even worse than him. Patrushev, his National Security Council head, is a true ideologue. I mean, really reactionary, a nationalist, full of conspiracy theories. I don't think Putin has much ideology at all. He's more or less a gangster running a, running a mafia state. But is that a possibility or a fear amongst Western leaders that if Putin goes or if the whole country collapses as a result of a humiliating defeat, then you may have a problem where the world's largest nuclear arsenal could be up for grabs? 
I think it is it is a worry. Um, I think it's a worry that that Putin might decide to escalate. Although I think you know as much as one one can tell, it's unlikely um, because it would be the end of him, and it might well be the end of, of Russia as well. And he may be many things, but I don't think he's completely irrational. Um, yes, there is a possibility that um, you know it's one of the things that might happen. It happened in Russia in 1917 that the regime might collapse and Russia might go into a period of anarchy as, as Russia did in 1917. If Putin has a successor, that successor will be dealing with a very different sort of Russia and a very diff different sort of success situation than Putin is. Whoever his successor is may well indeed be every bit as nasty and every bit as ruthless, but won't, I think, have the accumulation of power that Putin has. Um, you know, it's taken Putin many years to build this. And if Putin is overthrown, it's likely that Russia will go through a period of turmoil, which means that whoever emerges at the top will not have um, the power or the authority. But you are quite right about what happens to the nuclear weapons. I mean, that was the fear at the end of the Cold War. And that was the reason that the United States invested a great deal of money in, in helping to disarm countries like Belarus and helping to persuade the Russians to um, lower the limits on, on their nuclear on their nuclear arsenal. There are a great many things to be afraid about. Um, but the other problem is what, what would happen if we let, I say we meaning the West, let Russia get away with this. This I think would not necessarily be the last thing that Russia tries to do. It's already tried to take over parts of Georgia, already tried to um, threaten the, the Baltic states, um, has turned Belarus into a sort of client state and it's quite possible that, that it would continue to act in this way as a sort of gangster nation. And what I worry about is if Russia gets away with doing this, attacking unprovoked a, a neighboring country and seizing large parts of its territory and destroying a great deal of, of its infrastructure and, and killing a great many of its people, who else out there is going to be encouraged by that example? Because in human affairs and in international relations, as much as in um, daily sort of communications in cities and so on, we are influenced by examples. And if people get away with things, there will be others who, who are going to try it as well. So just in the last minute then, Margaret, um, let's try and be a little optimistic here, if possible. Is there a possibility that the U.S. could bring the Ukrainians to the table and the Chinese could bring the Russians to the table? I think it's interesting that the Chinese are cultivating the Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin which apparently is irritating the hell out of Putin. That's very interesting. And I think it's also interesting the Chinese have sponsored this delegation of African leaders who have been going to both capitals. Um, I think the United States and China together could put pressure on Ukraine and, and um, Russia to come to the bargaining table. But Ukraine and Russia have to be willing to come to that table. And there is no sign, as far as I can see, that anyone in Russia, and of course it all really depends on Putin at the moment, is willing to negotiate and there may be some more willingness in Ukraine. But of course, what happens is the longer the war goes on, the longer the war that Ukraine suffers, the more I think Ukrainians are going to find it difficult to come to a table and talk to the people who have done this to them. And so sooner or later, we know this war will end. But at the moment, I don't see much hope for a negotiated end to the war. Well, Margaret McMillan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Margaret McMillan, who's an Emeritus Professor of International History at the University of Oxford in the UK. Her books include The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914, and Nixon and Mao, and War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And she has an article at Foreign Affairs, How Wars Don't End, Ukraine, Russia, and the Lessons of World War One. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. I'm not